Welcome to The Lead from New Lines Magazine. I'm Danny Postel, the magazine's politics editor. And this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. In early July, the Biden administration announced that it would provide cluster munitions to Ukraine. President Biden called it a difficult decision. The Convention on Cluster Munitions is an international treaty that prohibits the use, production, transfer, and stockpiling of cluster munitions. It was signed in 2008 and entered into force in 2010. 123 countries are signatories to the convention, including two-thirds of NATO's member countries. Among the countries that have not signed on to the convention are the United States, Russia, and Ukraine. Others on that list include China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Israel. The Biden administration's decision to provide these weapons to Ukraine has been condemned by human rights groups and organizations that focus on civilian protection. But it's also been met with opposition in the U.S. Congress. Lawmakers from both parties attempted to block the transfer of cluster munitions to Ukraine. This effort, which failed, involves several members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, as well as hardcore MAGA Republicans like Representative Matt Gates of Florida. The Ukrainian government sees the issue a bit differently. Our position is simple in the words of the country's defense minister, Oleksiy Reznikov. We must liberate our temporarily occupied territories and save the lives of our people, he said. The cluster munitions question has even divided activists who stand firmly on Ukraine's side. For example, there's been a spirited debate within the European network in solidarity with Ukraine, with members on both sides of the issue. So there's a dilemma here. Might this issue not present a classic case of a choice, not between a good and bad alternative, but rather between two goods? On one side, helping Ukraine defend itself against a deadly military assault from a much larger and more powerful state. On the other side, protecting civilians from the harm cluster munitions cause. Both of these are goods, but they're in conflict. Sarah Golabdola joins us from Washington, D.C., where she chairs the U.S. campaign to ban landmines and cluster munitions coalition. And she's the CEO of Legacies of War, an international advocacy and educational organization working to address the impacts of the American secret war in Laos and the conflict in its neighboring countries of Cambodia and Vietnam, including the removal of unexploded cluster bombs. Romeo Kokriotsky joins us from Kyiv, where he's the managing editor of The New Voice of Ukraine, an independent media outlet. He's also co-host of the Ukraine Without Hype podcast. His career in journalism spans Ukrainian independent media, and he's one of the co-authors of a recent essay titled A View of Anti-Imperialism from the Periphery, which was published on the website of the South-South Movement. Sarah, Romeo, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Good to be with you, Danny and Romeo. Well, Sarah, I'd like to start with a question to you about what cluster munitions actually are and why they've been banned by over 100 countries. Sure, that's a great question. So cluster munitions are very dangerous weapons. They're small, but they 
they're deployed uh, through a canister. So they can be launched from the air, sea, or even the ground. So once they're scattered, they separate out into smaller submunitions, what we call bomblets. And these scatter through a very wide range. Uh, the New York Times article by John Ismay estimates that this can be as large of a range as four and a half football fields. So these canisters can disperse tens or hundreds of these submunitions that will scatter through that wide range. So the reason why cluster munitions have been banned by over 120 countries is simply because they lack targeting mechanism. So something as simple as being able to differentiate between a small child or a combatant is something that these cluster munitions cannot do. They're also one of those weapons that once they're, once they're dropped or launched, and if they fail to detonate on impact, they'll lay there dormant. They have no self-destruct uh, mechanism. So they'll be there until it's triggered by, you know, an animal walking by or a child in the worst case, finding it and picking it up. You know, the other thing that I'll note here as well is according to the latest report by the Monitor Report, which is a report that's produced by the International Campaign to Ban Landmine Cluster Munition Coalition, states that globally, 97% of casualty of cluster munitions are civilians. And in the case where the age is known, 60% are children. You know, the last thing I'll say, Danny, about cluster munition is that the shape and size of these weapons are very unique. They, sim they resemble a ball, like about a tennis size, tennis size ball. They have unique ridges. Some of them even have ribbons. And oftentimes they even have, like, they're very colorful. So, you know, child is a very, um, children are very curious. And this is very attractive to them, and which is why the majority of the casualty that we see are small children, are, you know, farmers that are just trying to grow crop to feed their families. Yeah, you recently wrote something, Sarah, in which you said, I can't help but see Ukraine's bleak future in present day Laos. And this <clears throat> is a very personal issue for you, very personal. You, your pinned tweet reads, as someone born in the world's most bombed country per capita, who grew up there, walked to school in a bombed, littered field, watched my father operate on children my own age injured by American cluster munitions. I know what it's like to live in fear. And you accordingly advocated strongly that the Biden administration not transfer cluster munitions to Ukraine. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you know, absolutely, Danny. You know, first, let me just say that, you know, as a child in Laos, you stated that I grew up watching my father operate on countless victims of unexploded ordnance accidents, most of them being cluster munitions. Um, I know firsthand the horrors of seeing a mother watch her child bloody, you know, while my father's operating in order to save their life. And given like Laos's own history of subjugation and foreign invasion, I deeply value freedom and respect each country's right to defend its territory. 
So I just want to reiterate that I personally stand firmly behind the United States' strong commitment to help valiant Ukrainians defend their homeland. Um, however, just not by using illegal weapons that's banned for a reason, right? Like there's in war, war is chaotic and bloody and just gruesome. But even then, the international community has adopted norms that that is placed there to protect precious civilian lives, to save as much lives as possible, right? And one of these norms is banning cost munitions, uh, banning landmines, banning chemical weapons. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just there because we know the horrors that these types of weapons can have on civilians, not just during the war, but after the war. And in the case of Laos, this is 50 years later. And I just got a message this morning, actually, from the National Regulatory Authorities and a report that was in the Laotian Times. Just 10 hours ago, Danny, two small children came upon a mortar like that was dropped during the American Secret War 50 years ago, exactly today. They started playing with it. And this is a 10-year-old little boy and a five-year-old little girl. It exploded and immediately killed these two children just 10 hours ago. So, you know, how is it that a bomb that's 50 year old can kill children to this day? And that's what I mean by what we're seeing today with cluster munitions, landmines being used in Ukraine. It's going to take years and years before Ukraine can recover from this. That's chilling and haunting. Romeo, I'd like to get your perspective as a Ukrainian, as someone who's in Ukraine. How does this issue look from the Ukrainian perspective? Well, Danny, the the main kind of sentiment or the most common sentiment I've I've encountered when talking to people about this is and this might sound harsh, it's the West's fault. The reason that we've been driven to use these quite honestly horrific weapons is due to the fact that the logistics for conventional artillery, like solid propellant missiles and rockets, is not there. That we have never been able to match parity or even come close to parity with the Russians' ability to fire shells, and that we're constantly operating at an artillery deficit. This matters immensely when you're trying to recapture land because you have to drive defenders out of entrenched positions. And without the capability to make them scatter, you end up having to kind of clear them person to person, basically, which is incredibly risky. And it makes the battlefield devolve into utter chaos, basically. So the the way it's kind of viewed is... We don't want these weapons polluting our soil for God knows how many years in the future. But at the same time, we need to recapture territory. We need to retake and, and overtake, defend and entrenched Russian positions. And without using nearly every type of weapon at our disposal, that's just not going to happen. So there's a kind of resignation that, yes, we we are forced to use these weapons because we're not being given the tools needed that would give us the alternatives to them. 
And to be clear, Ukraine's defense minister, Oleksiy Reznikov, outlined five conditions that um, he said would govern the Ukraine's use of cluster munitions. And I'll just quickly walk through them. He says, Ukraine will only use these weapons to liberate its territory within its internationally recognized borders and will not use them on Russian territory. Two, to avoid civilian casualties, Ukraine will not use cluster munitions in urban areas, only in the fields with a concentration of Russian military forces. Three, Ukraine will keep a register of the use of cluster munitions and the locations where they've been used. Four, based on the data from this register, sites of cluster munitions will sites of cluster munitions use will be prioritized as areas to be demined after the liberation of the territory. And finally, Ukraine's political military partners will be informed about the use of cluster munitions and its effects. Sarah, do, how do you respond to those conditions that Ukraine's defense minister has laid out? You know, I think in a situation like this one, where it's war and you know, I, I understand and empathize with Ukrainian leaders wanting to protect their territory, their people. It simply just isn't enough, in my opinion, right? Like, and I point to the, the history, like, that we can learn and draw from Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. There are data that shows where bombs were scattered. And there are, you know, there's, there, there's lots of resources to show how to, how to go into these, these places and, and see the extent of the bombing. But in a country like, you know, uh, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, things change as the years progress, right? Like, there's flood and other environmental elements. In Ukraine, even if you know exactly where they're used and it is within Ukrainian land, what I would urge Ukrainian leaders to think about is how much is it going to cost to demine? How long will the people have to wait in order to be able to return to their homes that they fled during the time of war? And who will help Ukraine do the work that's required to clear its land and rebuild its home? You know, I think about how the any time that there's a war and it captures the hearts and minds of the international community, like what Ukraine has done, you know, in, in this past like two years has rallied great support. But once it falls off the radar, then what, right? Where is the funds going to come from in order to demine? Where are the funds to rebuild and help Ukrainians like prevent further harm to civilians? Because, you know, at the end of the day, it's already done. There's already cluster munitions being used in Ukraine. There's already landmines. And now with this new, um, the new shipment that just arrived from the United States, it's just going to further exasperate the area and you don't know what Ukraine will look like in the next decade. So I think what we need to do as an international community of government, uh, NGOs, organizations, 
like Legacies of War, that you know, what we do is we push for global humanitarian demining funds. Um, and this, this covers places like Ukraine, not just Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, but the funds and resources are not limitless, right? I think what, what we need to really, really ask ourselves is how can we help Ukraine rebuild after the war cease? And I hope that that, that happens very soon. Thanks for that, Sarah. Romeo, would you like to respond to that? Sure. One of the things that I just wanted to note is that the Russians have been using cluster bombs on Ukrainian territory since day one. They were confirmed to use them in Bucha, which is a suburb just outside of Kiev. They used them in Mariupol, in Bakhmut. They've used them all across the front lines. They've used chemical weapons. The Russians are not constrained by any sort of moral or legal conventions that may exist. They will use and do anything to kill as many Ukrainians as possible. And they have been using these cluster bombs since day one, since February 22nd. So there's the addition of American weapons here I don't think will heavily impact that range. We're still going to have to deal with the mass mine layings in basically almost every region of the country. One of the reasons that the the counteroffensive is said to be a little less rapid than some observers would have hoped is because the Russians had time to lay simply enormous minefields in front of their trenches and behind them forcing and making it any advance incredibly slow. So the Russians have kind of done a lot of damage, and I'm not certain that the addition of American weapons will change that. In addition, Russians are using technology that is far inferior to weapon to, to U.S. armaments specifically, with failure rates as high as 40%, according to, to some commentators, meaning that half or nearly half of a payload does not explode and it's just going to sit there in the ground for years. So these are problems that even if the U.S. didn't send a single cluster round, a single cluster munition to Ukraine, these are problems that we would already have to deal with. There is simply no getting around that. I've spoken to people doing demining work, um, and they've told me that, well, this is going to be a generational project to to clean Ukraine of all of these mines. Prior to the outbreak of full-scale war, we had large parts of the Donbass already mined from the initial invasion in 2014. And those and that process is incredibly slow, and it also was not being close to finished. And I think this is just a consequence of the Russian invasion. It's just another kind of enigmity that the Russians have forced upon us. Our use of these munitions, while regrettable, doesn't change the fact that we are stuck with this problem, regardless of whether or not we use them. Yeah, you mentioned the extensive, Russia's extensive use of cluster munitions since the very beginning of the Ukraine war. If I'm not mistaken, one of the deadliest Russian attacks on Ukraine was a cluster munition attack on the train station in the city of Kramatorsk. That was in 2022. 
Do you want to talk about that particular incident, Romeo? I mean, the it killed a whole bunch of people, and it was targeted a civilian area. I mean, it's to me, it's just an example of what the Russians want to do. And the longer this war drags out, the more casualties, the more deaths, the more tragedies we're going to see, the, the more it's going to pile up. And if it takes cluster munitions to break the Russian lines, to uh, rat them out of the trenches, and to make sure that they are incapable of defending themselves from our counteroffensives and our liberation operations, then that's simply going to have to be the cost. Because every extra day that this war stretches on is just an unimaginable tragedy. I, I simply can't I simply can't imagine anything that would override that that overwhelming priority to defeat the Russians as quickly as possible. Sarah, back to you. It seems to me that, you know, so the United States has condemned Russia's use to Russia's use of cluster munitions, not only in the Ukraine war, but beyond. I mean, there's extensive documentation of Russia's use of cluster munitions in Georgia in the first decade uh, of this century, and then uh, a colossal use of cluster munitions in its bombing cam campaigns in Syria during that conflict in the second decade of the century. Um, so I have sort of two questions for you, Sarah. First, can you just talk a little bit about Russia's use of cluster munitions um, over the last 20 years? Yeah, you know, I think a use of cluster munitions anywhere is wrong and it should be stopped. And every country who's not a member of the Convention on Cluster Munitions should exceed and become a member. On Russia's use of cluster munitions, you know, Danny, you're absolutely right. When this first happened uh, at the start of the war, Press Secretary Jen Psaki even said that if cluster munitions are being used by Russia, it would be possibly deem a war crime, right? So this is, you know, one of the reasons the why, well, not the main reason, the main reason is to protect civilian lives. But the other reason is this sets the United States back, you know, as a champion of human rights by transferring these cluster munitions. And I just wanted to um, quickly uh, touch on a point that Romeo made about the need for Ukraine to use cluster munitions because of the ability for it to scatter a wide range. The 2022 Congressional Research Service report actually shows that cluster munitions manufacturers actually shows that the failure rate of these cluster munitions are between two to 5%. But mine clearance experts actually puts the failure rate or the dud rate at between 10 to 30 percent. I'll cite again uh, John Ismay's article in the New York Times actually points to another report, the government's own accounting report, uh, the United States government, that is, that shows the failure rate upwards of 14 percent. You know, while we're saying that the cluster munitions that are being transferred to Ukraine has a failure rate of less than 2%. I don't think this is accurate. You know, show me a report that shows how these are being tested. 
and I have asked for it, but have not received it. Um, it's when it's the testing is done in a control environment versus a war, it is completely different. And you could look at our past usage in Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, those failure rates are between 10 to 30%. Now, Vladimir Putin's use of cluster munitions in Ukraine at the train station is horrific. You know, there's the loss of so many civilian lives that's unnecessary. I'll also point to another area of Ukraine where Human Rights Watch also documented 15 casualties in an area called Izum in the eastern part of Ukraine. And this is during the war. You know, imagine what this will look like decades later. Romeo is right in saying that this is a problem that Ukraine will have to deal with. And I hope that the international community steps up and, and helps. But one thing that I disagree on is just because it's already a problem does not mean we need to exasperate it, right? Think about piling on more munitions that have a high dud rate on top of an already mine area. Do you know who is going to be doing the demining work? If history shows us anything in countries like Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, these are young people who love their country, who probably have seen you know, a mother or a father lose a limb or have lost a child due to an explosion. These are brave. These are going to be brave Ukrainian men and women who will be demining these areas after the war is over. And these are people who will not only be doing a highly tedious and dangerous job, but they're going to be also experiencing, you know, what experts have called like political mind, like political minefield, which is basically an anxiety of knowing that these area of land that you're stepping on, where you're walking to school, where you're doing basic things like trying to farm, you know that there's a chance that your, your life is constantly at risk. That is not the future that I want to see in any country. And in the case of Ukraine, that's who's going to have to deal with this after the war is over. How would you respond to that, Romeo? If I can, I just say that these concerns are incredibly valid, and to be honest, they're 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 thought provoking. As I'm listening to this, I'm like, oh my god, this is going to be such a such a major problem. But this all hinges on Ukraine surviving and Ukraine continuing to exist as a state and not as a piece of conquest for the Russian Empire. And to be frank, the liberation of Ukrainian territory is quite simply the overriding priority of Ukraine, of all Ukrainians. There is no point in planning for a future if that future no longer exists. And like I said at the start of, of our discussion, without the logistical supplies set up to provide us with a constant and steady stream of conventional munitions and conventional artillery, uh, we are forced to use alternatives in order to succeed in that goal of liberating Ukrainian territory. Like you mentioned, Danny, Minister Reznikov noted that these weapons will not be used 
in populated areas. They will only be used where there are confirmed concentrated groupings of Russian soldiers, never against settlements. So mostly this is just going to be agricultural fields. Basically, we are trying to take all the precautions possible to ensure that whatever consequences of the use of these weapons are minimized. But I think at the end of the day, there was a Ukraine made the decision that we are willing to risk these losses, however long down the road they may come, because we need to achieve a goal right now. And while that's not ideal or pretty or even maybe moral, it's war. And in war, there are decisions you have to make between shitty choices and shittier choices. And allowing Russians to cement themselves to win territory to keep any inch of Ukrainian land that they have conquered, where they have slaughtered all of its inhabitants or forced them to discard their identity is is not acceptable. That is not a future that anyone in Ukraine can be or, or is willing to comments. Sarah, would you like to respond to that? I hear you, Romeo. And, you know, of course, it's different when you're just sitting there and you're the leader of a country and you're trying to find all the resources possible. And this is, you know, one of the biggest reasons why I really, really support the United States' firm commitment to helping Ukraine win a decisive, have a decisive Ukrainian win and have the war be over as soon as possible. I would urge, you know, American leaders to really, really think through what will actually help Ukraine end this war, right? And the answer is not using illegal weapons. I talk a lot with members of the veterans community in my role. My board chair, Mike Burton, is actually a U.S. Air Force veteran. And he actually wrote a piece in USA Today stating the flaws of cluster munitions. And he calls it not the winning weapon. And he says this for the exact reason that I outlined it earlier, is all these weapons would do is fail, you know, and fail at a very high rate. And the only harm, you know, the biggest harm that they'll bring is to civilians decades later. So in a case of war, it's very hard to do when you're in the intense battle to protect the sovereignty of your country. But I also would urge leaders to think long-term down the road, think of the Ukrainian child that's yet to be born that might encounter an unexploded ordinance, right? Um, an unexploded cluster bomb. And what do we tell that child that loses you know, their, their life? What do we tell the family? And that's a very, very difficult situation that I would never want to impose on any other country, seeing it firsthand in my own birthplace of Laos. And I want to say, Sarah, that to be honest, I agree with you. These are not the ideal weapons. These aren't weapons that Ukraine wants or that we would have been chosen, but we were not given the things that we asked for. We were we don't have modern fighter jets. We don't have long-range precision missiles. We had to fight tooth and nail to get a trickle of modern heavy armor, modern tanks. Most of the 
advantages that NATO countries enjoy in warfighting we have that we have asked for we have not received and it looks like we will not receive them or we will receive them towards the tail end of the conflict and they'll be used to simply mop up the end so i agree these weapons will likely not be as effective as useful as uh, other kinds of munitions and other kinds of materiel we could be provided, but those things aren't being provided. Um, if they were, then we wouldn't need to request uh, cluster munitions in the first place. It wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be a topic we wouldn't have this discussion in the first place. Um, but in the absence of partners willing to give us the modern weaponry that we asked for, we are forced to take whatever's given and what the u.s is giving us uh, are cluster weapons i would love for them to instead of sending us cluster munitions for them to provide us with f-16s and abrams and long-range cruise missiles but those things aren't on the table to put a finer point on that romeo would you argue that opponents of the u.s providing cluster munitions to ukraine should in fact be advocating for the transfer of those other weapons, those more vital weapons that would allow Ukraine to defend itself more effectively as an alternative. Look, I don't expect organizations like Sarah's to pivot from their core mission of preventing the decimation of use of cluster munitions, which in general I wholeheartedly support. I don't like landmines i don't like cluster munitions all of the 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 tragedies and the the awful things the awful consequences of this weapon that sarah's laid out are completely true and accurate and they are really just these horrible horrible weapons of war and i don't expect organizations like her to to pivot to suddenly advocating to send us uh, to to lobby for specific weapons for ukraine i would like however people to put more pressure on U.S. lawmakers in particular to listen to Ukrainians more because we hadn't been asking for cluster munitions. We simply took them because they were offered to us. Um, I don't expect them to to go lobby Congress to, to give us F- F-16s, but I would hope they would at least try and and put their pressure on on lawmakers to listen to Ukrainians more to really provide us with the weapons that we are asking for and not just whatever's left in the stocks that the U.S. wants to get rid of. This is a perfect segue to the question I'd like to close with. I'd like to widen the aperture a bit beyond the issue of cluster munitions as such. Romeo, you recently co-authored a very interesting text along with Joey Ayub, Donna El-Kurd, and Leila Al-Shami. It's titled, A View of Anti-Imperialism, from the periphery, and that it, it, it appears as part of a series called South-South Dialogues. I mentioned this in the introduction. And in it, you argue, quote, critics of Western military support for Ukraine and Russian propaganda itself often called Ukraine a proxy or puppet state of U.S. imperialism. As Syrians and others have long known, the smear of being labeled a U.S. puppet has effectively driven discourse on the fundamental nature of these conflicts into irrelevant tangents obsessed with geopolitical concerns for the states involved instead of the suffering 
of the people in those states, instead of the suffering that the people in those states undergo. Can you elaborate a little bit on this point? Sure. So one of the the, the goals that I wanted to to put out when I was writing this piece is to really debunk or at least challenge this idea that everything in the world is somehow connected to American imperialism. And in that piece, in that specific uh, passage that, that you quote there, I, I wanted to drive home the kind of absurdity of people who claim to care about the, the average person, right? What is anti-imperialism supposed to be? It's, the, it's us caring about the actual human beings who live in a place, not the constructed political bodies that claim to represent them or claim to control the territory or whatever, but the humans that, that live there. Those are the people that matters. That's what anti-imperialism is supposed to promote, the people. But when you start talking about U.S. imperialism, suddenly the conversation completely ignores the whoever is living in whatever territory is under um, discussion, whether that be Ukraine, whether that be Syria, um, and instead shifts to talking about, oh, is this good for the U.S.? Is it bad for the U.S.? Does it hurt the U.S.? Does it help the U.S.? When those kinds of concerns are irrelevant, they do not matter. What matters are the people who live there that are actually caught in the crossfire of that conflict. And, and the greater concerns to them, completely immaterial. It's nice to look at a map as if you're playing a video game and saying, mm, this is good, this is, this is bad, mm, empire. But that doesn't, no one, no one actually living there is thinking about that. They're thinking about, oh my God, I hope my family doesn't die tomorrow. And when you start ignoring those people who are sitting in their homes and praying that no one they know dies that day, you've effectively abandoned any pretense of anti-imperialism. And at that point, you're just cheering for teams. Well, and you could, the point could be made that Ukrainians themselves are struggling against imperialism right now, but it's a different form of imperialism. It's Russian imperialism rather than U.S. imperialism. And that particular anti-imperialist struggle tends to get left out of the equation of the more U.S.-centric anti-imperialism that emanates, that, that, that emanates from certain quarters of the American anti-war movement, certainly not all, but there is a tendency toward a kind of U.S.-centric fixation on American imperialism and at the expense of seeing other forms of imperialism and therefore other anti-imperialist struggles like the one in Ukraine today. Yes, exactly. And in uh, towards the end of that, that excerpt that you cited, I point out that in geopolitics, we, we live in a world that is divided by empire, the U.S. empire, Chinese empire, the Russian empire. And very often a conflict that involves them and, or their interests in any way is going to harm someone and help someone else. And my point is that that aspect must definitionally be irrelevant or immaterial to um, an, an anti-imperialist worldview. because. 
the second you allow the imperialists to define the world in these spheres of influence, like Russia wants to do, like China often does, like the U.S. does, that's when you have allowed the imperialists to have control, to to maintain their control, because you've tacitly, at the very least, acknowledged that their worldview is correct, that there are empires and that there should be empires. And the only way to truly be anti-imperialist is to reject that framing entirely. Sarah, you recently tweeted something that struck me for the way you identify from your own experience as a Laotian with the Ukrainian experience. You wrote, I also know what it's like to be from a country that has suffered from foreign aggression and years of subjugation. And that's why I stand firmly with the people of Ukraine and with the United States effort to support Ukraine until there's a decisive victory for Ukraine. Sarah, talk about that a little bit, the way you identify as a Laotian with Ukraine's situation today. Yeah, I think, you know, I see this as a, like a fellow human being, right? And anytime that there's a war, whether it was Afghanistan or Yemen or Sudan, or in this case, Ukraine, my heart always goes out to the people. And I 1,001% agree with Romeo that people should listen more to Ukrainians on the ground and, and what they're asking for and what will actually help lead to that decisive victory. You know, in the start of the war, my, like my thoughts went immediately back to someone who I'm actually going to see later this month, my 98-year-old grandmother, who had to flee Laos when she was already like 40 to France and had to be separated, you know, from her, her nine children, not knowing if they were dead or alive, trying to figure out a way to cross the river into a refugee camp, you know, having to sacrifice her homeland, having to sacrifice everything down to the last family heirloom on her body in order to get safe passage and food for her children. This is the experience of the at least 6.2 million Ukrainians that have to flee their beloved homeland, not to, you know, even count the 8 million plus who are displaced within their own home, that's where my heart goes out to is the innocent civilians who, through no fault of their own, war came to them. And while, you know, as as a human being, of course, I am anti-war. In this case, I really feel that Ukrainians are fighting a just war, trying to protect their homeland didn't ask for the war, war came to them. So as much of an anti-war, you know, activist as I am, in this situation, it already happened. And what I would want, you know, as in the case of like my own birth country, where Laos was also at war, I would hope that the international community helps end this and help ensure that as many lives are saved as possible now and in the future. And likely with the amount of land that's already contaminated in Ukraine's beautiful you know, land, roughly 30% is already contaminated. And 
the war is still ongoing. You know, I fear for the farmers returning to their home, the child returning and trying to walk to school in safety. And that's, you know, exactly why as someone who have had to experience this, you know, since I was born, and even though I was born after the American Secret War in Laos, it impacted my life right when my mother gave birth to me, all the way till today. And this is why I choose to do this work to ensure that there is funding for global humanitarian demining efforts all the world, including Ukraine. Sarah, Romeo, thank you very much for this rich conversation. Thanks, Danny. Thanks a lot. This has been The Lead, a podcast from New Lines magazine. You can find Sarah on Twitter at Sarah Golubdala and Romeo at Romeo Kokriatsky. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Danny Postel. For more episodes like this, subscribe to The Lead or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. 